This is the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, December 8th, 2020. I'm your host, Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I'll be updating you on campus and local news, and then we'll be hearing from KCSU Sports Director Dixon Lawson. Then we'll be hearing from Leidson Gavaya, the founder of NoCo Nosh, and then I'll be delivering some national news after that. Ivy will be explaining what Proposition mean, EE means for Colorado and interviewing Kelly Lyell from the Coloradoan about why CSU students are outraged at the CSU Board of Governors. To conclude the show, Coda will be giving some updates on COVID-19 and technology, and I'll update us on the strange things happening in the world. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hello there, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is your campus and local news for today. According to Tamara Chung at the Colorado Sun, last week the General Assembly approved a bill that changes how the state's eligibility for State Extended Benefits, or SEB, is calculated. The problem was the expiration of the extra 13 weeks of SEB, which turn on when the jobless rate goes over 5%, and turn off when it goes below 5%. The program ended Saturday in Colorado, due to the state's insured unemployment rate reaching 4.9% in early November. Had the rate not fallen, SEB would have ended December 26th. As a part of a late amendment to Senate Bill 2, which dealt with housing and direct COVID emergency assistance, lawmakers adopted a second trigger to calculate unemployment rates differently. Instead of just counting roughly 130,000 people receiving regular unemployment benefits, the second trigger also counts those who've exhausted their benefits and moved on to federal benefits, covered by the CARES Act. That's about 75,000 more people who will now be counted in the total unemployment rate, or TUR. These states' extended benefits existed before the pandemic. In the past, states split the cost of the federal government. But with the CARES Act, the federal government covers 100% of the extended benefits program until the end of the year. Representative Kathy Kipp, a Democrat from Fort Collins who helped research the amendment, said of the situation, quote, If we had this trigger in place on November 28th, we would have not gone into the situation that we're in right now. This legislation ensures that it'll only trigger on if the federal government continues 100% coverage. What we're hoping this will do, and there's precedent for it, is that this will retroactively go back to the 28th and make everybody whole for those extra four weeks of unemployment. And that's going to affect a lot of people. End quote. More than a week after dozens of Loveland businesses announced that they would defy Larimer County's increased COVID-19 restrictions and stay open, several have decided to back down in hopes of additional support. According to Aaron Udell at the Coloradoan, more than 65 Loveland business owners announced that they would openly defy Larimer County's increased restrictions that began November 25th. Restrictions which banned personal gatherings of any size, closed restaurants to indoor dining, limited office capacity to 10%, and canceled indoor entertainment events. Within a week, the group of dissenters, which billed itself as small businesses for a healthy Loveland, had grown to approximately 100, according to Wednesday news release. After pushing back on Larimer County's move to level red, claiming that the case data on the county's COVID-19 dashboard was misleading and that the new restrictions were unfairly weighted against small businesses, the decision to follow public health orders came following the response of state and local leaders. Soon after the business's owner's November 24th announcement, state lawmakers representing Larimer County wrote to Governor Jared Polisk asking that they be able to join a quote-unquote 
five-star variance protection program that was piloted in Mesa County. Under the program, Mesa County businesses that have approval from the county's health department can avoid new restrictions when the county changes levels on the state's COVID-19 dial, according to Colorado Sun. Loveland City Council members also recently supported the adoption of a five-star program in the county, according to a letter sent to Larimer County officials. The five-star program from Mesa County is still in draft form, or receiving public feedback through Friday, so counties cannot apply to get a variance exception program of their own just yet. If the program is expanded outside of Mesa County, counties in dials level green, blue, yellow, and orange would be eligible to be considered for their own five-star programs, according to the state's draft framework of the program. Counties in level red may be eligible depending on results from the Mesa County pilot project, according to the state health department. In the meantime, state health de uh, department urged businesses to comply with public health orders, noting in an email to the Coloradoan that under level red, businesses are allowed to stay open with limited capacity and, while indoor dining is closed, restaurants may still offer outdoor dining, takeout, curbside, and delivery services. Moving on to campus news. A CSU team has received a $1 million grant to develop non-invasive biomedical imaging technologies. According to Andrea Leland at CSU Source, Colorado State University professor Randy Bartels of the De Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering has received a $1 million deep tissue imaging grant from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, or CZI, to develop new imaging technologies that could not only advance the understanding of the human body, but also offer new capabilities for studying basic biology, disease pathology, and early disease diagnosis. He will work in partnership with co-principal investigators Jeffrey Field, director of the Microscopy Core facility at CSU, and Christian Politz, professor and head of the Department of Mechanical Engineering. Bartels and Politz have joint appointments in CSU's Board of Biomedical Engineering. Breakthroughs in biomedical imaging have transformed human health diagnostics from magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, to confused topography, or CT scans. But to cure, prevent, and manage diseases, there is a need for a deeper understanding of biological systems. The grant from CZI will allow the CSU team to develop a novel, non-invasive imaging tool to open new windows of observation into the human body. Their goal is to view information at cellular resolution in complex tissue and through skin and bone in living organisms. According to CSU's Bartels, light propagating through a dense fog is like light propagating through a biological tissue. Quote, if you attempt to use a flashlight to view the bones and tendons and blood vessels within your hand, for example, you won't succeed. The light will be so scrambled so that all you see is a red glow on your palm. End quote. Bartels and his team aim to unscramble that light in biological tissue to illuminate previously hidden features. While ultrasound, MRI, and X-ray imaging can form images from deep within the body, imaging deep in skin with optical microscopy is not possible because tissue scrambles the light propagation, rendering the tissue opaque, and thereby fundamentally limiting the range of biological questions that scientists can address today. CSU professors and graduate students have published CSU professors and graduate students have published three papers on testing structures and tissues for how explosions impact them. According to James DeLoss at CSU Source, civil and environment engineering professor, professor Paul Heiliger headed the CSU's explosion research 
that involved a collaboration among multiple departments. Heiliger said in an email thanking Environmental Health Services Director James Graham for his department's help in the effort, quote, In my opinion, our collaboration has been made a model for what a university should be like. We've been able to maximize existing resources under the hope of educating students and further understanding this unusual area, end quote. Colorado State University is one of only a handful of academic institutions in the U.S. authorized to conduct explosions research. Three of these are in Colorado, and CSU has the most extensive program among them. Among the findings in these reports, they found things such as hiding behind simple plywood balls or boxes full of sand could help mitigate bodily harm during explosions. Additionally, they were able to do research of the effects of explosions on different parts of the body, such as eardrums, using animal tissue samples provided by professors in the School of Biomedical Engineering. These discoveries would not have been possible without the work of many across campus and the city, including the Fort Collins Police Department, which donated materials for some of the tests. The projects were unfunded and relied on volunteer time and materials. Heiliger said of the collaboration, quote, There have been a lot of people helping us, and we are extremely grateful for that assistance, end quote. And that's all I have for today. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. That was Local and Campus News with Ivy Winfrey. We'll be right back with sports news. Local music is a sample element of every city around the world, but unique to every community. KCSU will showcase a part of our international local music exchange, a radio show and podcast collaboration with college radio stations around the world. All participating stations are sharing their local music community with the world. Listen to the podcast at kcsufm.com. on the Rocky Mountain Review. Now for sports news with Dixon Lawson. Hello everybody, my name is Dixon Lawson and you're listening to the RMR Sports Report for the week of December 8th. We have a lot of news to cover, so let's jump right into it. Starting off last Wednesday, the second volleyball uh, actually was able to get back into the gym and onto the hardwood to play against Purdue. They did lose 2-3. to three. Um, but at least it is good to see that they get back out there. I don't think that's the official start of the season, almost just kind of like a, a preseason game, but good to see them back. With that, the women's basketball, after coming off an amazing start of the season, played Fresno State on 
December 3rd, they were winners 89-83. Um, that was an away game. It's always good to win on the road. Uh, then they played the following day. It was a back-to-back against Fresno State. That one they did lose those 74-78. to So it looks like those were two pretty good games there. As of for Friday, we did have the football game. It was played down in San Diego. And final score being 17-29. Not in favor of the Rams. One last event going on tonight. Women's basketball um, back in Fort Collins to play San Diego State tonight at 6 p.m. That will do it for the RMR Sports Report for the week of December 8th. My name is Dixon Lawson. I will catch you all again Thursday, 4 to 5 on RMR. Be sure to have a great day. That was Sports News with Dixon Lawson. We'll be right back with an interview with Glideson Gavea from NoCo Nosh. Piadina Italian Flatbread Sandwiches is a proud supporter of KCSU. Located in Old Town, Fort Collins in the Exchange, they can also be accessed around campus and throughout Fort Collins in their traveling food truck. La Piadina means flatbread in Italian, so they make their sandwiches with their own Piadina breads in traditional Italian baking style. La Piadina uses organic flour and has vegan and gluten-free flatbread options. For more information and a menu, visit lapiadinanoco.com. Now we're going to be speaking to Leidson Gavea of Noco Nosh. He is the founder, and he's also a business owner here in Fort Collins, here to tell you about what exactly Nosh is and what its mission is. Thanks so much for joining me today. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. My name is Leidson Gavea, and I am the founder of Nosh Delivery. For those who don't know, can you explain what um, Noco Nosh is? Sure. So, Nosh is a, um, a food delivery service that is similar to the other ones in the market, but it's different because it's owned collectively by local uh, restaurant owners in Northern Colorado. So we have two. We have about two hundred and thirty restaurants on the platform right now, and forty of these are. Uh, owners, 40 of these restaurants own, collectively own um, Nosh in Northern Colorado. Why is it significant that Northern Colorado has its own community-based um, food delivery service rather than just depending on the others in the market that are more corporate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it became, you know, it became incre- increasingly expensive for uh, independent restaurants to afford food delivery through the large national uh, food delivery companies. You know, they charge on average 
30% in commissions, oftentimes more than that. We've heard 35 or more percent. And that's just not a sustainable situation in the long term for most independent restaurants. So what we have done instead is create an alternative food delivery service uh, that is owned by the restaurants themselves and we charge commission rates that are fair and economically sustainable in the long term. We focus on customer service because we are rest restaurant owners doing food delivery, food delivery, not a software company doing food delivery. And then we also hope to contribute to keeping more of the local dollars in Northern Colorado, instead of sending them out to these um, largely for-profit companies. Um, why did NOCO Nosh decide to remove sign-up fees entirely for local restaurants recently? Yeah, so the city of Fort Collins came up with a request for proposals for food delivery services, any, any company that does food delivery to apply and submit a bid because the city was going to, was planning to use uh, CARES Act money in order to subsidize commission, the commission rate for restaurants. Um, so as a means to help restaurants during this difficult time. So we submitted, the, we submitted a bid and we were, Nash was selected by the city to do delivery for free for the restaurants. And in addition to that, the city is also picking up this, the processing fee of $1.49 and 50 cents per order. So a total of $1.99 per or order uh, for the customer side of the expense. So customers get $1.99 uh, until the end of December on any order that they put through uh, NOSH. How do you think that the coronavirus pandemic has impacted kind of the overall mission of NOCO NOSH now that uh, local businesses are struggling a lot? Yeah, I think that our mission from the beginning was to help independent, local independent restaurants, just help them um, with or having an alternative, a food delivery alternative that's sustainable, not only now, but in the long term. And I think that when the pandemic hit, and initially in the spring, when the restaurants all had to shut down, you know, a lot of our rest restaurants are only on NOSH because they don't want to do business with the other large uh, players. And they were able, a lot of them told us that they were able to remain open because uh, of NOSH. That was the only business that they were getting. And in addition to that, we were also able to, initially when the restaurants all had to shut down, and now it's the same thing. But in the spring, we were able to uh, hire 60 furloughed restaurant employees uh, as drivers because we, you know, our, our demand increased quite a bit when the pandemic first hit or the closures first happened. And now it's happening again. So that's a, another way for us, has been, a, there's, you know, has been another way for us to help the restaurants to stay afloat. And I think now with the help of the city, 
and with us being able to do delivery for the restaurants without uh, any cost and also with the incentive that the city is giving to the customers by by making it a dollar 99 cheaper i think that's going to help us even more to be able to assist the restaurants when they need the most in what's perhaps probably the biggest crisis that they have ever faced yeah uh do you think that the real local focus of northern colorado as a whole has impacted noco nasha's success compared to other cities where it might be more corporate focus mm, i think so for sure i think that's what is so impressive about uh fort collins in northern colorado is that everywhere you go um everywhere you go you see local written um you know all over the place in in most of the businesses and and most of the signs and i think that the sense of community is also something that made a difference from the very beginning for people to not only uh, welcome us, welcome Nash and their community, but also to um, support it and help it grow and become the service that it now is. And I think that it's also before, but especially through the pandemic, the community has seen uh, Nash as a means to support the local restaurants. You know, so if they want to support we have we have um, gotten this feedback from a lot of the customers that when they want to support the the local restaurants, one of the ways they do it is by using Nosh because they know that it's going to be cheaper, more sustainable for the restaurants, and also more of the money will stay in the community. Do you have anything else that you would like to add before we go? You know, I would like to thank everyone in our community that um, has supported and has seen the opportunity to help um, a local business succeed and also a business that is collectively owned and run by other local businesses. Uh, this has been really important to, to, to have everyone in our community be on the same page to support a business that is doing the right thing treating everyone with decency and uh, helping to strengthen the local economies of our northern colorado communities by keeping more of our dollars here instead of sending them out to either large corporations or shareholders all right thank you so much Again, that was Lights and Gavea of NOCO NOSH. For more information on them, you can go to their website at nocoNosh.com or you can download their app on the App Store. We'll be right back, so stay tuned here on the Rocky Mountain Review at KCSU Fort Collins 90.5 FM. Residents and visitors to Northern Colorado love to get outdoors. But whether you're hiking or walking the dog, it's important to be aware of the dangers of tick bites and how to prevent them. Several tick species found in Colorado carry and transmit serious diseases. Wearing tick repellent, permethrin-treated clothing, and practicing regular tick checks on everyone, including pets, helps to prevent tick bites. The sooner a tick is detected and properly removed, the less likely the risk of disease transmission. 
For more information, visit coloradotics.org. This PSA is brought to you by the Colorado Tick-Borne Disease Awareness Association and 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock and this is National News Highlights for Tuesday. Over 100 people are seeking victim compensation from Jeffrey Epstein's estate. According to Matthew Goldstein of the New York Times, the fund intended to compensate sexual exploitation victims and it has paid out tens of millions of dollars so far with more than 100 claims. The fund will be accepting new claims against Epstein until March 2021. The fund has paid over 30 million U.S. dollars to those who've accused Epstein of sexual exploitation and abuse with the condition of anonymity. The fund started taking claims around a year after Epstein died in his jail cell. Individual settlement terms are confidential, and each claim takes about two months to fully review, with victims being interviewed by video call. Jordana Feldman, the administrator of the, administrator of the Victim Compensation Fund, believes that the interviews allow her to create a relationship with victims and support them in receiving justice. Many of Epstein's victims were teenage girls, and he promised some of them careers in modeling as a way to groom them into being exploited. Florida police raided the home of a former state data scientist who has claimed that Florida manipulated the state's COVID-19 statistics. According to Reese Thebalt of The Washington Post, police entered the home of Rebecca Jones Monday morning to search for her computer, phone, and hardware used for a website she created that accuses the state of manipulating statistics. Officers entered the home with their guns drawn, according to a video of the incident. Jones has been accused of hacking into a Florida State Health Department website to send unauthorized messages to emergency personnel in the state, but she has denied this accusation. The message urged them to speak out against the state's response to COVID-19. After being fired by the state, Jones created a data portal for COVID-19 that she says is independent and transparent. Jones refused to undercount numbers or perform other requests by the state that she says she considered unethical. She has accused Florida of undercounting the number of positive tests in the state. The state of Georgia has certified Biden's election victory after a third count of ballots. According to the Associated Press, this was the second recount requested by President Donald Trump. President-elect Joe Biden is now confirmed to have taken the 16 electoral votes in Georgia. Georgia law allows for a ballot recount if margins between candidates are within half a percent. Biden led by about a quarter of a percent of votes in Georgia. The third recount was done using scanners, which noticed some discrepancies in some county results, but did not change the results of the election. Those counties did have to recertify the results in order for the recount to be completed. The Rhodes Scholarship has been awarded to a Latino DACA recipient for the first time. According to Bo Hamby and Dahlia Mortada at National Public Radio, Santiago Potes is a 23-year-old who recently graduated from Columbia University. He will, be get, and he will be going to graduate school at the University of Oxford in fall of 2021 to get his master's degree in international relations. He plans on returning to the U.S. following graduation to support the United States with his experience and knowledge. 
Potez was originally planning not to apply for the Rhodes Scholarship if the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program hadn't been protected in a federal case. He plans on working at the U.S. Department of State or as a counselor to a U.S. Senator. The Rhodes Scholarship is a highly selective and prestigious scholarship program. U.S. regulators have given a positive review of data released to, related to the Pfizer vaccine. The Pfizer vaccine for COVID-19 has already been given to some members of the public in the United Kingdom, but it has struggled in the U.S. due to a hurdle from the Food and Drug Administration. According to Lauren Niergaard and Matthew Perone at the Associated Press, documents were released Tuesday in confirmation that the vaccine is safe and works to prevent coronavirus transmission. This review allows for Pfizer to distribute the vaccine within days, and the FDA is going to be live-streaming a public event to show the reliability of the vaccine. The event will essentially be a scientific court hearing that is hoping to help the public make a decision about whether or not they feel safe getting the vaccine. This court hearing will include a panel of independent scientists, and they will be reviewing the first pass review before making any recommendations for U.S. citizens to choose whether or not to get it. That's all for national news. I'm Koda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now for an explanation of Proposition EE with my co-host, Ivy Winfrey. Hello, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. The election has come to a close, and Colorado voters in 2020 voted in favor of quite a few ballot measures. We at KCSU have prepared a series of segments devoted to discussing the future impact of each of these ballot measures. Today, we'll be discussing the purpose and possible impact of Proposition EE, also known as the Tobacco and E-Cigarette Tax Increase for Health and Education Programs Measure. Proposition EE was designed to increase cigarette and tobacco product taxes over seven years and create a new tax on nicotine products such as e-cigarettes. In Colorado, cigarettes have been taxed at a statutory rate of 20 cents per pack, 1 cent per cigarette. Additionally, Amendment 35 of 2004 authorized an additional constitutional tax of 64 cents per pack, or 3.2 cents per cigarette, for a total state-levied cigarette tax of 84 cents. The ballot measure was designed to incrementally increase the statutory cigarette tax rate to $1.80 per pack by July 2027, thereby increasing the total state-levied cigarette tax to $2.64 per pack. Proposition EE was also designed to set minimum price requirements for cigarettes. In Colorado, tobacco products, cigars and tobacco designed to be chewed or smoked in a pipe, have been taxed at a statutory rate of 20% of the manufacturer's list price, or the MLP, and a constitutional rate of 20% of the MLP for a total rate of 40% of the MLP. The measure was designed to incrementally raise the statutory tax rate by 22 percentage points by July 2027 for a new total state-levied tobacco products tax rate of 62% of the MLP. Prior to Proposition EE, in Colorado, nicotine products such as e-cigarettes were not taxed. The ballot measure creates a tax on nicotine products that would match the tobacco products tax rates. The rate will begin at 30% of the MLP in 2021 and increase gradually to 62% of the MLP by July 2027. Revenues are to be dedicated to health and education programs including the following. Preschool Programs Cash Fund, State Education Fund, Rural Schools Cash Fund, Housing Development Grant Fund, Tobacco Tax Cash Fund, Tobacco Education Programs Fund, and the State General Fund. Initially, 
The money raised would go to K-12 education, rural schools, tobacco programs, and a smaller portion to go into general state spending. Of the amount allocated for that, 27% must be distributed to local governments and the remainder used for general state spending. In 2023, the breakdown shifts so the vast bulk of the money would go to preschool programs. The next year, healthcare programs begin to receive a chunk of that money as well. That includes funding for Medicaid, primary care, tobacco use prevention, children's health, and a variety of other healthcare programs that currently get cigarette and tobacco tobacco tax revenue. Colorado's current tax rate on cigarettes is relatively low nationally. It ranks 39th among the states, according to the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. Public health advocates have long said raising taxes on tobacco is a good way to discourage people, especially young people, from picking up the habit, which is notoriously bad for one's health. Proponents say that not only does Colorado have one of the highest rates of youth vaping in the country, it also has one of the lowest tax rates on cigarettes and tobacco products, and no tax on vaping products. Cigarettes, tobacco, and nicotine products are addictive. Research shows detrimental health impacts can include cancer as well as heart and lung disease. A group of discount cigarette makers, including Liggett Group LLC, Vector Tobacco Incorporated, and Excalibur International LTD, filed a lawsuit in mid-October against the state and several Democrats, including the governor, attorney general, and lawmakers. The complaint alleges that in crafting the ballot measure, state officials made a quote-unquote backroom deal with cigarette giant Altrina, previously known as Philip Morris, to fix prices at high levels, effectively eliminating competition from discount brands. The governor's office declined to comment on pending litigation. Information with this segment was collected from Ballotpedia and Colorado Public Radio. You can find more information about every ballot measure that passed this year on Ballotpedia.org. That was an explanation of Proposition EE. Next up, we're hearing from Kelly Lyell about why people are outraged at the CSU Board of Governors. We'll be right back. So today I am joined by uh, Coloradoan reporter Kelly Lyle here to talk with us about how the CSU governing board made a statement of public support for the CSU Athletic Administration in the face of harsh criticism and allegations. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So for a bit of background, can you uh, tell us what the uh, allegations are? Why are people so angered by the CSU Athletics Administration? Well, there's a whole series of allegations, but um, the the most telling, the one that is the most immediate concern to people has to do with concerns about the reporting of sexual harassment, sexual violence, sexual abuse within the athletic department when those incidents have been reported either by, there's concerns about female athletes who have reported those incidents the athletic department, athletic administration, and how their complaints have been handled, as well as people not in the athletic department who have had similar concerns against where the alleged perpetrator was somebody in the athletic department, that there's been much more of a a tendency to kind of try to get them to ignore it or 
hope it goes away or anything but confront the problem and try to address it, at least according to the numerous people that myself and my colleague, Miles Bloomhart, have spoken to over the last several months about this. And it really came to a head with the lawsuit filed by, I think it's Kate Schiller, I might have her first name wrong, Schiller, about uh, about sexual harassment um, and including physical groping and verbal abuse while working as a server at Canvas Stadium during games last season by a prominent booster. And three different times she went to her superiors with concerns, at least on at least on one of those occasions, she also met with athletic department staff, Steve Cottingham, um, Joe Parker. I don't know if he was actually in on one of the meetings, but Steve Cottingham is the deputy athletic director. She was not technically working for CSU at the time as the university's legal team has pointed out far too, uh, really far too prominently has tried to make that case. But she is a CSU student who was working on campus for a company that was contracted university to provide these services. And so the combination of that and the fact that the ultimate solution to that based on her lawsuit was she got demoted to working in the pantry where she'd be behind the scenes and wouldn't be serving customers and therefore wouldn't be able to receive tips and some of the other things, perks that would come with being a server. And the perpetrator, Michael Best, according to who is the husband of Denver media personality, Susie Wargin. He was upgraded and moved into the president's box for the remainder of the season. So he got actually better seating so that he wouldn't be around those types of people, apparently. The most recent, and then you go back to the August investigations into the football program was accused of violating COVID-19 protocols and not cooperating with contact tracing and bringing people back from quarantines too soon. The Then two days later, it came out that there was a culture of racial insensitivity, um, bigotry in the program that dated back, that even preceded the current coach and his staff, Steve Adazio, went back to when Mike Bobo was the coach and his staff, but continued under Steve Adazio, at least according to the various allegations that were leveled by both current and former administrators, current and former athletes, um, all, of course, very fearful of retribution. So very many of them did not allow their names to be used, but several did. That's how strongly they felt. So it's it, it's hard to just say what's going on in the athletic department because all these things are happening almost simultaneously. The CSU Board of Governors uh, recently uh, released a... Um, statement of support. Uh, what kind of reasoning, uh, a statement of support for the athletics department, um, what kind of reasoning did they use uh, to um, justify their statement? Well, that's a good, they used these, this, this report that was done by Hush Blackwell over the summer, which is in, it was started in August, was released in early October. Um, they're a legal firm out of Kansas City, Missouri. They do these types of investigations. They call them throughout the country. Ironically, it's only called an investigation by CSU's administration when it seems to be convenient to call it an investigation. When it's more convenient to call it an assessment is when they first released it and a lot of people said, wait a minute, this isn't wrong. 
then they choose, then they do that because there is plenty of it. If you read the full report, they don't really say, they don't really say anybody lied or made things up. They just say that there weren't a substantial number of people saying these things. Therefore, the university probably doesn't need to worry about them. Um, and, and, and then they say, this is an assessment, not an investigation. But then their investigator, when he's talking to the faculty council and is asked exactly that by a faculty member, um, Antonio P uh, Garcon, I, I, I hate to get his name wrong. I don't have it in front of me right now. He's a foreign language professor. He asked that exact question then. He says, was this an assessment or investigation? It sounds like an assessment. She went adamant, no, this was an investigation. Yet in their own documentation at the top of the report, they specifically say, we were not asked to investigate, only to assess. Um, so there's a lot of strange things about that report and its findings. And certainly since those findings came out, people have been even more critical of the athletic department, I think, than they were before that in assessment, investigation, whatever you're going to call it, was actually done. And then the sexual assault lawsuit gets filed and we just go on and on. And now it becomes even more than, not that COVID cover-ups would be bad, would be good, not that you shouldn't be concerned about the racial insensitivity, racial bias issues, but Title IX violations, that's just a blatant violation of a federal law. And so if that really happened, then how anybody can do this? So I think that's why the Board of Governors felt they needed to respond is this athletic administration, in particular, the three named individuals are the top three, Athletic Director Joe, the Athletic Director Steve Cottingham, and NCAA Compliance Director and Senior Women's Administrator Shalini Shanker, they're named in all these things. They were named in the faculty council issue. They were named in the lawsuit. Um, these are, I think they felt like, uh-oh, our administration is being accused of violating federal law. We better say something. We can't just ignore it anymore. Still, the reasoning they gave is, that the investigation absolved them, they say. It's terrible. Again, if you read the investigation, draw your own conclusions. The printed conclusions, bullet point, don't always match up with the investigation itself, as I found reading through it, in my opinion. And then they point to a whole bunch of, they've been Title IX compliance things that have happened, in, you know, and they go back and what years they happened. And we were found to be in Title IX compliance. We had a review by the Department of Education, but some of those date back to 2011. That they're citing as reasons that they don't that they don't violate Title IX. Um, maybe they did in 2011, but it's 2020 now, almost 2021. So it, it's very shaky ground, in my opinion, that they use to say that they are that everything's okay because everything they cite was done well before of these allegations well before any of the incidents in these allegations really were ever, were ever brought forth. Um, so you mentioned earlier uh, there was a lot of criticism during the faculty council meeting uh, that was directed at Joyce McConnell about the allegations. Um, and I know that uh, multiple members of the uh, board of governors are also on, were also attending that faculty council meeting. Did they specifically acknowledge any of the concerns or criticisms made by the council? Not in this letter. 
um, not in their statement. I was not part of the Board of Governors meeting itself, so I do not know if there was any discussion before they adopted this statement or not. Um, and I'd be curious to go back and find out, but certainly Jane uh, Rohde, who is one of the members, she was on the entire faculty council call. She had been invited by the faculty council to come join the meeting, which of course in these COVID times was being done virtually over, uh, I can't remember if it was a Zooms or Teams meeting, but I think it was Teams platform, Microsoft Teams platform is what they were using. And, uh, and then Stephanie Clemens is the faculty council's representative to the Board of Governors. She's a non-voting position, but she is a non-voting member of the Board of Governors. Those two people were there. Whether there were others or not, I don't know, but I know for a fact those two were, and in fact, they both spoke during the faculty council meeting. So I got to see their faces on the screen and confirm that they were really there and participating in the meeting, not just maybe tuned in and tuned out. Um, do you know if anybody from CSU or anybody from the Board of Directors has been in contact with anybody that's um, any of these prominent figures you mentioned that are like behind these like allegations? Jordan Acosta said that is one of her biggest frustrations is that there has not been November 18th with Joyce McConnell. Um, I can't remember who else was there. Jordan has told me, but. And she said they felt like their issues were kind of quickly dismissed. She did not feel it was a super productive meeting. She felt like they were basically shot down by the administration. Um, but she also said they have attempted to schedule follow-up meetings since then and have not gotten any response. Um, again, she's the one that's the softball player that is a student athlete representative at least to the Mountain West Conference and on different internal advisory groups that CSU has in place in its athletic program. So how has the response been since the statement of the board is released from uh, the people who are already actively criticizing the CSU and the athletic administration? Uh, they have been furious. Uh, my phone just started the minute that statement came out, the minute people became aware of it. Um, Anybody, I my phone started blowing up before I even started reaching out to some of them for comment. I was getting texts, I was getting emails, I was getting phone. I had two of them were calling me right away, um, and so it was. Uh, they were very, very upset that the Board of Governors would do this. First of all, the Board of Governors, in theory, is the they are responsible for oversight of the university's administration. This is who Joyce McConnell. And really, Tony Frank, as the chancellor of the system, this is the board that they are supposed to answer to. And the fact that there was almost no, nothing further given, and they just quickly penned this response, which, by the way, pretty much every one of them is convinced was written by the university's general counsel office, um, and, and then handed to the Board of Governors to say, hey, please sign this, please endorse this, please whatever. Um, I do not know. It was emailed to me by the CSU Systems Public Relations Director, External Communications Director, who is uh, Tiana Kennedy, who is actually a former co-worker of mine. And uh, so she emailed it directly to me. That's where I first saw it. And then I noticed it was up on their website shortly thereafter on the Board of Governors website. It's there right now. If anybody cares to go look at it, they can find it. 
uh, finally, is there anything else that you'd like to add that uh, we didn't cover here? I, I think the biggest thing is this, all of these and why they're be compounding on each other is they seem to all have the one common thread that comes out in all three of these, whether it's the COVID-19 protocols, whether it's the racial insensitivity, racial bias claims, um, which to be fair to the university, at least one of those was proved to be unfounded according to the assessment or investigation. It turned out that black athletes were not tested for drugs more often than white athletes, according to the sample they checked. That had been a claim that was refuted. One of the few that was refuted in the thing. But, um, and then the sexual assault, sexual harassment, Title IX reporting of sexual assault, sexual harassment issues. The common theme is not addressing these issues and quickly dismissing them. It's, I, I like to refer to it as the ostrich approach. I'm gonna bury my head in the sand and just pretend that this stuff isn't happening and hope it goes away by the time I pull my head back out of the sand or wherever else you might wanna say it was placed. Um, and, and you just can't do that. That is to me, when you have student athletes who are literally telling the faculty council, telling the public that they do not feel safe, that they do not feel that they are safe in their, within their programs, within their athletic department, everything else, nothing else should matter at that point. Everything else in any educational institution, whether it's a preschool through a you know law school, if your students don't feel safe, you've got a major issue that needs to be addressed before you can move forward with anything ever. And so of all things to not to ignore or to not address, that one is a huge concern to me. That is That overshadows all the others and not that the others are minor, but that should in and of itself outweigh everything. And that's the approach that people with the faculty council took. That's what upset them so much. They were told, multiple times that female athletes did not feel safe. And they said, we, that is an absolute no-no. We have to fix that. And so far, at least, there's been no response other than that everything's hunky-dory. The Board of Governors just said so. All right. Well, that's all I have. Um, again, uh, I've been speaking to reporter Kelly Lyell from the Coloradoan newspaper. You can find him on Twitter at Kelly Lyell or on Facebook at Kelly Lyell slash news. Uh, Kelly, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. You just heard from Kelly Lyell. Now for COVID-19 updates. Colorado State University has a total of over 1,600 cases of COVID-19 since May of this year. The university is getting over a spike following Halloween, and the overall spike has decreased since about the midway point of November, but it is still about as high as it was just after move-in. Larimer County remains at a high risk score in a severe risk status, also known as a level red. There are over 11,500 cases in the county and 81 people have died. There are 182 outbreaks of COVID-19 in Larimer County, and there have been 197 new positive cases in the past 24 hours. In the past two weeks, every day has seen at least 15 new cases reported, and nine days have seen over 10% of cases come back, 10% of tests come back positive. The county's case rate is currently nearly 800 per 100,000 residents, and it is considered high once the county reaches 100 per 100,000 residents. 
There are 113 COVID patients currently in Larimer County hospitals, and overall hospitalization usage overall hospitalization is at 69%. Intensive care unit usage is at 73%, and nearly 30% of residents have been tested within the county. The state of Colorado has over 264,000 cases of COVID-19 and over 3,300 deaths among the, those cases. There are over 2,400 outbreaks statewide, and over 1.8 million people have gotten tested. The state has recently updated the dial framework to allow for worship and ceremonies to continue with a bit more flexibility. Some examples of allowed ceremonies are funerals and weddings, which are now classified as essential. These new changes went into effect Monday at 5 p.m. Essential worship activities and ceremonies must follow social distancing guidelines, and masks must be worn indoors. The order also allows for museums, aquariums, and zoos to be open for educational reasons, with capacity at 25% or 25 people per room, whichever number allows for less people to occupy a space. In Colorado, new cases have been high and are remaining high. The United States has a total of over 15 million cases of COVID-19, and over 280,000 people have died from complications to the virus. On December 7th, cases increased by over 200,000, deaths increased by over 1,500, and hospitalizations reached 102,000. In the past two weeks, cases have increased by 16%, deaths have increased by nearly 50%, and hospitalizations have increased by 23%. The northeastern U.S., as well as Navajo Territory in Arizona, have seen the most deaths due to the virus. Highly populated cities and towns have experienced the worst of the pandemic in the U.S. Thanksgiving correlates with a nationwide spike in COVID-19 cases. Information for this segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, National Public Radio, the Centers for Disease Control, and the New York Times. Currently, the only ways to protect yourself and those around you include wearing a mask, staying home when possible, keeping social distance when leaving the house, and washing your hands for at least 20 seconds. In addition to this, people who are feeling sick should stay home unless leaving to receive testing or necessary medical care. For more information on COVID-19, you can visit cdc.gov coronavirus. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Now for tech news highlights. Apple and Google will be releasing their contact tracing software to California, where both of the companies were created. According to Mitchell Clark at The Verge, California is the largest state to adopt the technology. It has recently been piloted on California's university campuses. The app is called CA Notify, and it will bring ease to contact tracing processes for the state's public health workers. Contact tracing is essential to COVID-19 prevention, and the state is the 18th so far to adopt this technology as a means of prevention. California Governor Gavin Newsom announced the partnership Monday, and it is voluntary to participate and secure. California residents will be able to opt in as soon as Thursday to receive exposure notifications when in contact with someone who tests positive for COVID-19. A U.S. judge has prevented President Donald Trump from banning TikTok from the App Store, According to Bobby Allen at National Public Radio, District Court Judge Judge Carl Nichols found that the TikTok ban was an example of Trump overstepping his authority. Judge Nichols was the second to rule against the ban. Lawyers for TikTok argued that the Trump administration had failed to search for any alternative app before banning TikTok, despite millions of users on the app being in the U.S., U.S. user data is stored in Virginia with backups in Singapore, but the White House has argued that TikTok could be used by Chinese, the Chinese government to spy on Americans. 
This claim has not been proven with any evidence, and the company has stated that Chinese authorities have never tried to get access to American user information. That's all for Tech News Highlights. I'm Cota Babcock, and you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins on 90.5 FM. We'll be right back with Weird News with Ivy Winfrey. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. You just heard tech and COVID updates with me. Now for Weird News with Ivy Winfrey. Hello, everyone. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Sometimes we need to get a little bit weird with it. So here's some of the weirdest stories I've found from around the world today. The former Israeli space security chief publicly claimed that space aliens are real and that their existence has been kept a secret because, quote, humanity isn't ready, end quote. According to Aaron Reich at the Jerusalem Post, retired Israeli general and current professor, uh, professor Haim Eshed said in an interview with Yediot Aharonot, uh, Israel's largest newspaper, that Israel and the U.S. have both been dealing with aliens for years, and this did not refer to immigrants, with Ashed clarifying the existence of a galactic federation. The former space security chief gave further descriptions about exactly what sort of agreements have been made between the aliens in the U.S., which ostensibly have been made because they wish to research and understand, quote-unquote, the fabric of the universe. This cooperation includes a secret underground base on Mars where there are American and alien representatives. Ashed insists that U.S. President Trump is aware of the aliens, that he was quote-unquote on the verge of disclosing their existence. However, the Galactic Federation reportedly stopped him from doing so, saying they wished to prevent mass hysteria since they felt humanity need to quote, evolve and reach a stage where we will understand what space and spaceships are, end quote. Ashed provided more information in his newest book, The Universe Beyond the Horizon, Conversations with Ahim Ashed, along with other details, such as how aliens have prevented nuclear apocalypses and, quote, when we can jump in and visit the men in black, end quote. Ashed did not provide any evidence to his claim other than his personal testimony. Professional breakdancing will be making its debut at the Paris 2024 Olympic Games. According to George Ramsey at CNN, breaking, which is the official name of elite breakdancing, will be the first dance sport to appear at the Olympic Games, having been staged at the Youth Olympics in Buenos Aires two years ago. The International Olympic Committee, IOC, executive board also announced that the skateboarding, sport climbing, and surfing, three events that were due to debut at the postponed Tokyo Games, will be featured in Paris as well. Sean Tay, president of the World Dance Sport Federation, said of the announcement, quote, Today is a historic occasion, not only for B-boys and B-girls, but for all dancers around the world. The WDSF could not be prouder to have breaking included in Paris 2024, and we thank everyone who helped make it possible. The executive board of the IOC, the Paris 2024 organizers, the WDS staff, and most importantly, the breaking community itself. End quote. 
Paris 2024 will see 16B boys and 16B girls, the term used for competitive breakers or breakdancers, compete in one versus one battles. And it is hoped the sport's inclusion will attract a young audience to the Olympics. At the 2018 Youth Olympics, there were three medal events that drew crowds of more than 30,000 people each day, according to the WDSF. Measures that were introduced ahead of the Tokyo Olympics allow host cities to put forward new sports to be included in their games. Tokyo 2020 is scheduled to begin on July 23, 2021. The Ohio Department of Health is now recommending that those living in Ohio should avoid traveling to Ohio. According to Ian Cross at News 5 Cleveland, Ohio has been added to the Ohio Department of Health's COVID-19 travel advisory map, meaning that the state is recommending Ohioans avoid traveling to Ohio, and those entering Ohio after traveling from Ohio are advised to self-quarantine in Ohio for 14 days. To be clear, residents of Ohio are free to move about the state, but the ODH recommends staying home except for necessary trips. The ODH included the following statement on this week's travel advisory. Quote, This is the first week since April where Ohio's positivity for COVID-19 has increased above 15%. The state has seen record levels of cases, deaths, and hospitalizations in the past week. And all Ohioans can help limit the spread and impact of this virus. This includes recommendations to stay at home except for necessary trips for supplies, consistent mask wearing when around others, and frequent hand washing. Together, we can help spot stop the spread of COVID-19. End quote. Ohio was added to its own travel advisory map because, as the ODH states, seven-day rolling average positivity rate for COVID-19 tests in the state rose above 15% for the first time since April this week. Any state with a positivity rate above 15% is put on the map, and ODH recommends travel to those states with high positivity. The advisory and self-quarantine recommendations are intended for both leisure and business travel, and should be heeded by both Ohioans and out-of-state travelers, as the ODH stated. It is also a guidance and not a mandate. And that's all the weird news I have for today. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. This is the Rocky Mountain Review. Maximus, have you caught the latest gladiatorial match? No, but I plan on catching the recap on the KCSU Sports Podcast. KCSU always has and always will bring you sports. Alright, this is Tube. You're listening to 90.5 KCSU Metal And now for the weather. Today we're experiencing a warm and sunny day with a high of 60 and a low of 27, pretty low wind speeds, and no chance of rain. Tomorrow will be about the same, although clouds will be coming in, and winds will be moving up to 5 miles per hour. Still no chance of rain. Thursday will cool down quite a bit with a high of 43 and a low of 23, a 10% chance of precipitation, and 8 mile per hour wind speeds. And for Friday, you'll have to tune in to the last episode of the Rocky Mountain Review this Thursday, from 4 to 5 p.m., only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. After that, we won't be back until January, so make sure to tune in. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank Thomas Taylor, Asher Corrin, Stephanie Keel, 
Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Griffin Ham, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.